Hi, Dave Stahoviak here, host of the Coaching for Leaders podcast. In one minute, you're about to hear the Q&A show with Bonnie, which we air the first Monday of every month. Before we start, I've just announced that applications are open to the Coaching for Leaders Academy from now until Friday, September 11th. If you're ready to shift from knowledge about leadership to action in leading better, the Academy may be right for you. So I'm inviting you to discover more by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash academy. Be sure to visit and read all the details before Friday, September 11th. That's when applications close. The address again is coachingforleaders.com slash academy. I look forward to talking with you personally if the Academy may be right for you. Thank you for listening. And now here's the regular episode. It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 489. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover wisdom through insightful conversations. Once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions. If you have a question you would like us to consider in a future question answer episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. You can submit it there for our consideration. I am joined by Bonnie Stahoviak, as I am often. Hello, Bonnie. Welcome back. Hello, Dave. All right. So we've got a whole bunch of questions here to tackle. Uh, let's take the first one here from Dustin. Dustin writes, do you have any good material suggestions for employees going through mergers and acquisitions? Short and sweet. Thank you, Dustin, for sending in this question. Uh, obviously, we don't know a lot of context around this question. I didn't have a chance to respond to Dustin yet, uh, Bonnie, on email. Uh, however, I still wanted to put this in here because I have gotten some version of this question over the last uh, three or four months a few times now. And so I know this is on people's minds. And this is something that because of the nature of what's going on in the economy and COVID and all of that, that uh, there's likely going to be more transitions happening in the world and for organizations in the coming months and years. So I do have a few general thoughts and perhaps Bonnie will as well. My first thought on this is thinking about going through a merger acquisition is regardless of what the press release says or what the statements are from the executives on both teams of both organizations, my experience has been both in my own experience of going through this and experience of watching clients go through this over the years is almost always it's an acquisition. There's one organization, uh, one party that is the more powerful, more resource rich organization and is acquiring the other party. It's rarely stated that way explicitly. But oftentimes there is one organization that has more power, more resources, uh, insert adjective here that, that goes along with that. And so there does tend to be a bit of a power imbalance when two organizations come together, almost always. And in the context of that power imbalance, there's some language that tends to be used a lot in these situations that I find that ends up a lot of times being lies. And I don't think that they're intended as lies. Maybe that happens occasionally, but I think truthfully, people do believe these when, this, when mergers and acquisitions happen. But these are the things that I've run into and I've seen people struggle with. One lie that is told, usually by the acquiring more powerful organization, is that we're not going to change anything. The other lie that is told is that you're going to have a lot more access to resources because we are a larger, 
bigger, badder organization with larger budgets and resources, and so you'll have access to a lot more. Again, I think this is generally well-intended when it's said. It's just almost never true. The changes are inevitable because as two organizations come together, there are things that regardless of how much due diligence has been done in advance, of how much conversation has had, even if it's all healthy, there are things that people do not anticipate. There are redundancies that almost inevitably come up in every acquisition or merger. And so almost always, if there's not an adjustment of layoffs, if there's not an adjustment in roles and responsibilities, there's certainly changes that happen and there's seats that are moved. So I think that you should expect that there are going to be changes, even if the message is there's not going to be changes. The other lie that tends to come out in mergers and acquisitions, and especially from the more powerful organization to the organizations that that's being quote unquote acquired, is that you'll have access to more resources. And I've heard this so many times and I've never really seen that play out. And again, I think it's well intended. I think it's said often with the intention to help those that are coming in in a less fortunate situation to feel better about this opportunity and to feel better about what's going on. The reality, though, is that there's just rarely a bucket of money or resources or people or whatever resource insert here that is instantly available to that organization. It's been my experience that sometimes the opposite's true. If resources, if anything happens, it's actually that they sometimes tend to decrease and you have to then start to sometimes battle for resources that were assumed under the old organization's model. And so I I think this leads me to a second thing to be mindful of is that politics change really fast. Uh, Don't assume anything when a merger and acquisition happens. And so what that means for both organizations, but especially the organization that's being acquired and the people who are being acquired, is that your personal brand, your political power in the organization often gets the reset button. And depending on what role you're in and what the, the what branding and politics were like before that, that might be a good thing or a bad thing for you. But I think that the the thing to know would be to assume that that's going to change and that there's going to be a bit of a reset. So I think one thing you can do as an employee or a leader in an organization that's been acquired is to start to reach out very quickly to folks in the acquiring organization, build relationships, discover what's important to people, understand a little bit more about what goes on culturally, and spend a lot of time asking questions and listening and observing. And I think the faster you do that, the more likely you're going to be able to start to navigate the politics and inevitably be in a better position to make requests, make asks uh, when things change because the assumptions and the politics of the prior organization aren't necessarily true anymore. And then I think the only other thing I'd say is what's the things that may have been promised, the things that may have been espoused by the by the organization before this happens, oftentimes don't necessarily play out. So what's on paper starts to become more important. Numbers that are on paper, spreadsheets, what's been documented becomes much more important. I went through this experience in an organization a while back where the context of the politics and conversations around what the meaning behind numbers was, was lost entirely. And what it came down to was just what was black and white on paper. And so that's something to be mindful of too. If you find yourself going through this situation in a merger acquisition of just being mindful of the context around what happened, how things emerged, what numbers looked like is often lost in the context of a merger acquisition. Thanks for the question, Dustin. I'm 
I'm interested, like Dave said, in all the various things that we could talk about here because mergers and acquisitions can look so differently. I would encourage you to be thinking about all along the way through all the aspects of leadership in the process of one of these things taking place is what was the purpose? And sometimes, as Dave said, we can get to that by the stated purpose. Is this being acquired to perhaps diversify our portfolio of products or services? Was this to save on efficiencies, et cetera? And then sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper beyond what is stated and to what the actions actually tell us were the real reasons behind why a change like this took place. You will be working in an environment full of fear. And I find it helpful to help others navigate as well as myself to be as transparent as I possibly can and regularly have check-ins where I can be communicating about what I do know and also communicating about what I don't know yet. That second half so frequently gets left off and people are worried about it. Why haven't they said anything about this? And it's like they've made the decision, but I haven't heard yet. So just even being able to talk about those things. And when you feel like you have said it enough and that message has gotten out across all of the people that you lead, you're probably one one hundredth of the way there. This is something that requires repetition because of that fear people are going to be less likely to trust you, not because you're necessarily an untrustworthy person, but because the situation can bring up so much fear and trepidation that if we can just keep being that constant source, that trusted person who they can begin to believe will come and share the things that we do know, share the things that we don't know, it can go a long way in ameliorating some of that fear. If the purpose of the merger, generally this will happen more in mergers than it does in acquisitions, although, I mean, like I said before, it can depend on what the purpose was for it. If the goal was to create one unified company with a unified mission, a sense of purpose, and we do want to have Perhaps there was more than one acquisitions taking place. If we want to become one, whatever this company is, then your role as a leader will take on the flavor of trying to create a shared culture. And it's funny when I think back to all of the reading that I've done about culture and Dave will chuckle at this. It was some that I struggled the most with because I often felt like the experts on culture were saying two things that couldn't possibly be true at the same time. So they would say, you can't change culture. You can't control culture. There's nothing that you can do. Culture just is. And yet there would still be references to shaping cultures. And I think it's kind of important to keep both of those things in our heads, that culture is kind of this beast. It's very much a part of, if you think about systems thinking, and it's not like I can just come and do this one thing and then have the desired result because of the one thing that I did. These organizations are messy. People are messy. And when we're trying to create a shared culture, there are so many dynamics to consider, not all of which, in fact, I would argue most of which we can't really control, but we can as leaders take those steps to try to begin to shape a culture. I don't know, Dave, is that your experience when you read about culture where you feel like they were saying, you can't do a darn thing about this. Oh, but maybe you can. Did you feel that tension uh, reading? I'm thinking by the way, specifically of Edgar Shine is um, one of the experts that we did some reading on that I kind of struggled with, with its density and complexity in terms of what he wrote. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it through that exact lens. I was thinking more about what you said before that, 
and just thinking about my own experience of the difference between what's espoused as the purpose of a merger acquisition and what's the real reason behind it. And I was just thinking of my own experience of having gone through this once many years ago of the espoused reason for the acquisition ended up being completely different than the actual reason for the acquisition. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about. And <laughs> and what I wish I would have done differently of being part of the organization that was being acquired is to listen for that more. I eventually got there, but I would have gotten there faster if I had listened for that more. And if I had jumped in and not necessarily espoused <laughs> the thing that wasn't being said myself, but if I had taken action to line up with that, I would have built a lot more political capital much more quickly. It happened eventually, but it would have happened a lot faster if I'd actually paid attention to what was not being said. And so that that was really striking me like right between the eyes. And on Shine, boy, it's just I think about the difference between the culture and he's he's so good on it and yet it is so complex thinking about culture. So I'll I'll we we've had him on the show before, so I'll link to the the episode that we've had him on. Dustin, I hope that this was helpful to you and uh, got you some things to think about. And by the way, I'd be really curious for those of you who have found a book, a podcast episode, an article, someone that you've really found has been helpful of navigating through mergers and acquisitions. I'm finding, as I was preparing for this question, I don't have a lot of resources on that. I've not come across folks, and I haven't spent a lot of time looking, but I haven't come across folks who are experts on this. So if you found something that's been really useful to you, please pass it along. I'd really love to see it and uh, have uh, build that into our repertoire and maybe even add an episode on it here uh, going forward. Thank you, Dustin, for the question. Uh, next question is from Melanie. Melanie's one of our new community members, Bonnie, and she posted this inside our portal, uh, and we had a lot of discussion on it, and I thought it would be a fun question for us to tackle as well. She asked, what was your most difficult learning curve as a new manager, and how did you work through it? And I'm going to actually make the addition on this question here of what about today? What's our current challenge as a, a, a manager or just current challenge we find professionally today. So uh, Bonnie, you want to start with this one? I can answer all three of these questions the same way. I really enjoyed reflecting on your question, Melanie. And I thought back instantly to becoming a manager for the first time, at least in terms of in a professional context. And back then it was really twofold. One would be asking more questions. And I can fast forward to today, and Dave, you can ask about today, and I still find myself thinking that the way out or the way through so many of my challenges is still to ask more questions. I think sometimes, you know, we're, we kind of think that as leaders that we just fix these things and like you've checked it off your list and you're never going to struggle with that again. And I think on something as powerful for me, I, I really believe questions can change the world. And so for something like that, I don't think you can relentlessly pursue that as a belief if you don't also admit that you are a human and you'll struggle with it. So I, I, I think it's actually the same for me. The second thing that was difficult as a new manager and still, I don't think I have it all figured out is around what we classically call difficult conversations. And to me, it is less about how do I handle them when they happen? And it is more about how do I make more of them happen? How do I create a culture where we're having difficult conversations so much that they're no longer difficult, that they are actually embedded in the culture of the organization such that 
It's not uncomfortable. It's something we do every single day. I I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but especially if you're a new listener, it may be interesting to you. I'm on our COVID-19 leadership team at my university and the group of people I've been working with, I have really enjoyed the, I, I wanted to use the word alacrity, but I use it so infrequently. I'm not sure it means what I'm trying to say here. The alacrity with which they became a team, a trust, we became a team, a trusted team where we, again, I wouldn't even call them difficult conversations, but just to call other people to say like, no, I think you're wrong about that. Or no, I think you missed something over here. And that's just not an uncommon thing to have happen. But we know that the reason that we're asking those questions, that we are attempting to redirect someone else's thought or say that we think they missed something is not to hurt the other person, both in terms of like hurt their political capital or make them look bad, but actually just because we already have established that we respect each other. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, wow, what a great idea you just had. But instead could be that we just regularly tell each other that was excellent. That was great. Ooh, that, but then also, no, I don't think that's going to work. And to have that kind of trust where you know you're all trying to aim for the same goal, you know, that's a wonderful environment to work in. I was listening recently to Seth Godin's podcast, and he had a wonderful episode about difficult versus direct conversations. And this has just been ringing in my ears and in my mind ever since I heard it. I will attempt to encapsulate what he shared, but I'll also encourage you to go listen. Dave will have a link in the show notes to the episode. It's just superb and is not long at all. And the idea here is, yes, have those difficult conversations. And that's the time when we are wrestling with the ideas and and trying to fine tune things and, and just trying to make sure everyone's perspective, maybe not everyone's perspective is heard, but the relevant perspectives are heard. And we're listening to the quiet voices and we're listening for what's not being said in addition to what is. And we're, we're just, we're willing to have those rigorous conversations that lead to good decisions. But then he talked about, don't just focus on the difficult conversations. You're not done yet. Then you need to also be having the direct conversations. A decision has been made, or in this case, let me not use passive voice here. I have made a decision and here's what it is. Let me be very clear. This is exactly what I've decided. And I'm, I'm finding that, you know, I work at a complex place and, and sometimes that we're, what we're missing isn't quite as much of the difficult conversations. <laughs> we're having more of those, but the actual direct, this has been decided by me and here's the results of that. And, and actually, you know, engaging in more direct conversations, I think can be really helpful to us. And I'm laughing because Dave and I have shared before about, you know, I, I tend to be a really direct person. So I'm watching him smile from across the table, like what she's taking away from this. So she has to be more direct than she already is. But I, you know, I find we're in a crisis right now. The whole world right now is in a crisis and in a crisis, it can be helpful to people to have direct messages about what's been decided and to have sort of that confidence behind it. And then, you know, maybe everybody didn't agree with that. There's all kinds of controversial issues going on right now. And speaking of fear, which we spoke about in an earlier question, we're all working just immersed in fear. So sometimes we need a little bit of directness so that we can all get focused back on the goal. What is the goal? And 
not still feel like we have to keep mucking through that particular decision. That one's been decided. Let's go on to the next one. Let's continue to work together to bring out each other's strengths, to help refine and shape ideas, and to work in a trusted capacity such that we can meet those goals. Melanie, as I was thinking about your question, thinking about what Bonnie just said, uh, you know, sort of the opposite in a way. I'm not as direct naturally as Bonnie. And especially years ago when I started my career, my first management role, oh boy, (laughs) it was not direct at all, especially when issues came up. And so the biggest challenge I had as a new manager was being willing and ready and able even to give people constructive feedback and constructive criticism when they weren't meeting their objectives on something. And as a result, people would push boundaries that I didn't enforce. And so that caused me some challenges in my first management role. And the the way I got better at it, working through it, is I got thrown to the wolves, Melanie, is how it happened. So karma just has a way of coming back at you, I suppose. Uh, so my first job professionally, full-time, where I was a full-time manager, my boss had the nickname in our region as the drill sergeant. That's what she was known as. And that was her personality. The culture of the organization was a culture of in-your-face feedback. And this particular person who I had as my first boss professionally was the epitome of that. Constantly in my face, and everyone else's too, not just me, constantly in my face, direct feedback all day long. It was super uncomfortable. There were days I did not want to go to work because it was um, it was difficult. And I would not recommend that management style, by the way. However, it was really good for me at that time because I realized for her, it wasn't personal. It was how she worked. It was how she leveraged her strengths. It was the way she developed people. And I grew to love it and love her and missed it a lot when she ultimate, we ultimately uh, parted ways and went different directions in the company. And so that was really useful to me. And so the thing that I would suggest, Melanie, and for others who are thinking about working through a challenge is if you can do, not necessarily what I did, which is wait for it to come along, but if you can throw yourself into that situation a bit, if you struggle with feedback, get yourself in a place where you are going to give people a lot of feedback or look for the opportunities. If you struggle with presenting, find a way to get in front of people and present, volunteer for the opportunities, go to Toastmasters. Whatever you need to do, just getting exposure to it will illuminate the things you're not doing well with it, will get you getting feedback from others. And for me, at least, provided more comfort with it because I realized nothing awful was going to happen if I gave and received difficult feedback and that provided a lot more comfort. Now, um, the what about today (laughs) margin is the biggest challenge I have today as a professional and just Bonnie mentioned COVID. Work stuff is getting done. The things that have to happen family-wise and kids is getting done. The personal development time, spending time to have Um, to go on vacation, to read, to write, to do the things that I love to do is not happening very much at all. And in fact, there's been like tiny little projects I've been working on for weeks, which normally I would have done in a day. And that's super frustrating. That said, it's uh, it's also coming from a place of a lot of privilege. So I'm grateful for that privilege and that things are going well professionally. Things are going well. 
for our family. And yet it is still really, really difficult in that I'm used to operating at least with a little bit of margin in my schedule. I'm used to being able to move forward on things. I'm used to having a little more time for myself. And I don't have that right now at all. I know Bonnie doesn't. And so that is super challenging right now. In fact, one of our cabin members this week was mentioning how he was just really struggling, that he was finding that he didn't have a lot of personal development time uh, suddenly in the last few months. And everyone was going around the virtual room nodding in agreement because we're all struggling with that to some extent. And so that's the biggest thing I'm I'm dealing with right now. And the thing that I'm really trying to work on is just taking a few minutes a day, even if it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just going outside for a walk, uh, getting outside, going for a run is super helpful to me just to get out of the get out of the house and, and do something that's not uh, inside the four walls. So for me, it's just been finding those little times to be able to help with a little bit of that margin, but still still struggle every single day. Our last question is from Tarin. I'm working with a bunch of people in the organization right now doing some internal coaching and wondering what you use to keep track of what people are working on, professional development goals, follow-up, etc. Tarin, thanks for this question. So the what I have done, I used to rely on my memory mostly, but I've learned one because I'm getting older. <laughs> Secondly, because there's just always more and more people in life. I need to do a better job of taking notes. And I came to that conclusion a few years ago. So what I do is I will sometimes jot down and I keep it really, really short, Taryn, of which I've I started at a place of writing down lots of notes or a paragraph about interactions. And I found that that was just not doable in the context of daily work and meetings and all things going on. So what I do now is I, after a conversation, I use a I use an app called Drafts on my Mac. And usually I, after a conversation, I will jot down a phrase or two about something I want to remember about that interaction. And I don't find that I have any difficulty remembering things that are significant as far as decisions and as far as emotional things going on for people, I do find that it's hard sometimes to remember some context things. And so I write those down usually as a short phrase, and then I save it. I use a CRM called Pipedrive just so I can organize things. But I, I have in past years done that in a contacts app. I have in the past done that on in writing. I have kept Microsoft Word documents in the past, but I find somewhere to keep that where it's easily accessible before a next interaction or a next meeting, especially if it's not someone that I interact with on a daily basis where I'm going to remember those things. Here's the other hack that I have on this, and this may sound weird, but I just started this practice years ago of any time I write down a note about a person, I write it in the context of if they would read this note. So I generally don't write down, like if I'm thinking something really critical about them or I have some frustration with them or whatever, insert here that I wouldn't necessarily want them to read, I don't write that down. Even though it's my notes, especially today of owning our own business, no one else has access to those notes. But I just, I don't know, I something about in past when I've worked in organizations where even though they were my notes, you know, I never knew who might get access to that file two years from now. Speaking of mergers and acquisitions, <laughs> if I left, departed, if those files were available somewhere, I just always, especially I've done this over the years with clients, 
in a CRM system, I never write anything critical about a customer or client or something. If I was frustrated, I found a different way to vent that to someone else. I'd never put that in writing and documentation anywhere because I never wanted someone to find that and perceive frustration I had in a moment to be representative of the value I had in that relationship. And I've continued that practice over the years because I also think that it's a really good checkpoint for me on my emotions and trying to separate myself from a, if there are emotions in the moment, good or bad, of just really, just writing down things that are factual and allowing then me to enter into the next conversation more from a place of neutrality to be able to support that person in whatever way I'm supporting them. So I don't know, maybe that sounds weird, Taryn, but that's just worked for me. And I found that to be a practice that's helpful in just being able to look at things a little bit more objectively. I love this question because (laughs) in some ways what you wrote is representative of a book that I wrote, The Productive Online and Offline Professor. And you might be thinking, what does a book like that have to do with this? It's a secret. The publisher doesn't know this, I say somewhat sarcastically. And that is that I was asked to write a book that was a part of a series of books for people that teach in higher education, but it really kind of got allowed me the opportunity to think about the different roles that I play in my my life as a professor, as a leader, as a person who, as Dave mentioned, you know, navigating the family priorities for me and other things in my personal life. So it's really a book a lot more about that, but would be relevant to anyone who teaches, leads, and and has other priorities. The reason I mention it is not as a book promo. It's not really my style to do that, especially not without asking Dave about it in, in advance and making sure he's okay with that. But the reason I bring it up is that you can, I, you can talk about your book anytime <laughs> you want to. I have on my website a consolidated list of all of the tools that I recommend in the book. So Dave, I'd love it if you would link over oh, to that page. Yeah. That's a free resource not even you don't even have to give your email address for that one that anybody could pop over to to have a look at some of the tools I'm about to mention but also ones that we won't have time for on today's episode so your question how do i keep track of what people are working on professional development goals etc i have three pieces of advice i want to give and i'll reference some tools along the way first off i have a waiting for list And this waiting for list that I have is kept electronically, although you certainly could keep it on a paper system if that's your preference. But I like it electronically because I can have general waiting fors. So it might be, you know, a one-off kind of thing that I'm just waiting to hear back from someone on a question that I asked them. But there also are people that I work with quite a bit. And by work with, I also mean Dave in the sense of we work with together to build our family and build our podcasting empires. <laughs> and so oh boy. I have a at it's the at the symbol at is in many digital organizational systems is the symbol for you're about to tag something. So I have an at waiting dash Dave list. So I also have an at waiting that's a general one. Then I have at waiting dash Dave list. And when Dave and I get together, you know, for our date nights that we're having so many of now during COVID-19 and we want to have a really romantic conversation in front of the kids, I might pop that up and I can see the things that either that I need to talk to Dave about. I've never brought up with him. There's just the at Dave context. Or if there's things I brought up and we just need to follow up and see how things are progressing, that might be the at waiting for Dave. And so I use this all the time at work. I use it somewhat at home, but I find it really helpful 
just to be able to follow up on the things that I've either delegated to others or just that I'm, I'm trying to get a question answered. I want to move something forward because so much of the work that we do involves other people. It's so rarely just something we can take care of ourselves. So I find the waiting for a good approach to use to keep track of what others are working on and might need a little bit of follow up from my part. The second thing I want to recommend is that I find as a leader, I very often have to facilitate conversations to help people translate intention into action. In fact, I just came from a meeting. Dave said, are you ready to record? And I thought, holy moly, we're, we're recording today. <laughs> and, it, you know, I kind of got really into this in a good way. I sort of lost track of the afternoon because it was exciting to me to hear them talking about some of the challenges and some of the struggles. But so many times things get left there. And it brought me a lot of energy to be able to ask questions and help people take that intention. This is a problem and translate it into action. What is one thing? that could come out of our discussion today that could make that a little bit further. Sometimes it stays too big in our heads and we just, we just feel the weight of the problem. And I, I loved it. There was one particular woman there who's relatively new to our organization. And we were talking about one, one step that people could take and she wasn't even ready to take that. I just love that she owned that. Like, Oh my gosh, we're not gonna be able to fix that. And so I was like, but what would be then one step that you could get yourself to be closer than to that one step that we're all talking about committing to. So just helping people translate their intentions into action, I find very powerful as a leader, because then any minutes that get taken or notes that get taken about that meeting, rather than just we're struggling with this, this is hard, this isn't working, we can have develop this, create this, problem solve this, and and a real action oriented set of steps with owners one identified owner. And then if, if you've got to involve other people, then maybe the three or four key team members that it's going to take to get that thing tackled, but assigning an owner that's going to own taking that action to the next step. And then finally make it visible. So it's interesting, Dave and I, you know, we work with, we don't really have normal lives or normal jobs. We work with a lot of different organizations and different people. So it would be nearly impossible for us to think about just one system for all of those people. Because, you know, if I work with, I'm actually excited, I'm going to be doing another podcast series with the California State University system. They have their own systems for things. And so I can't expect them to learn my system or whatever. So I kind of have to have my system where I mentioned like the at waiting for list. But sometimes I need to use their systems. So at my organization, we use a tool called Monday.com. It's a project management tool. And what we use it for is around onboarding. And so you can kind of track where everybody is. Are they, you know, what are the steps IT are taking to get them set up in our various systems? What are the steps that HR are taking? You can see everything being tracked in one place. By the way, it's a good service, but it's not the only project management service that I use. So for our podcasting world, we actually just recently switched over to a service called Notion. Instead of Notion.com, it's Notion.so, Notion.so. And I can't get the, I shouldn't say I can't, I haven't even tried. I wouldn't try. Like, so I got monday.com for this one thing. And then I got notion.so for this other thing, but I also have kind of my centralized task list and that's where I can link to these different things. So it doesn't really have to be that confusing. If there's something I need to do in monday.com, it's tracked in my to-do list and I have a link straight over to there. So as 
cumbersome as it may seem to have all these different tools, it's really not that hard as long as I have that hub. And that hub is what I run everything from. And that's what I go to look to, to suss out what are the priorities, what's important. Because sometimes when we use other tools, email is notorious for this. We use other tools and then we allow other people to dictate all of what's important to us. So email is, it's not like we're sending often an email to ourselves. Make sure you think about this. It's often other people saying this is important. This is important. This is important. So I need this centralized hub, which in my case is called OmniFocus. It's a Mac only app. There are great options for our Windows friends as well and Linux friends. And so, by the way, you could go over to that website that I mentioned that'll be in the show notes from today to have a look at some of my other recommendations if you don't use a Mac. But having that centralized hub where I know what I've committed to, I understand if there's a due date associated with it or I can have some sort of a priority indicated in there. And it's mine in the sense of, I'm able to do regular reviews to, to have a greater holistic thinking about what's important to me. And some of what's important to me involves other people. And that gets back to your question. How do we track what other people are doing? I hope those ideas are helpful to you. Thanks so much for the question. Several related episodes of this conversation was helpful to you. I'd recommend, first of all, episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership. My guests on that episode were Edgar Schein and Peter Schein. They have been probably the most prolific authors on culture and organizations over the last several decades. Uh, Edgar Schein's work has really transcended so many different organizations and so many decades of research. In that episode, we talked about the context of culture, but also the importance of humble leadership. It's a great complement to many of the things we mentioned on today's episode. That's episode 363. Also, speaking of culture, episode 404 will be valuable to you, especially if you're thinking about more around the mergers and acquisition question. My guest on that episode was Amy Edmondson. We talked about how to build psychological safety. And one of the wonderful findings of her research and the research of others on this is that uh, even if you're not able to influence positive change within the broader organization, even if the rest of the organization is going down a path that's not as helpful, there is a lot that an individual leader can do to create and support psychological safety within their own teams. Episode 404 is a wonderful starting point for that. And then finally, I'd recommend an episode a while back from Dave's journal, Appeal to the Nobler Motive. I mentioned in this conversation, my first boss and some of the experiences I had with her, she was a wonderful manager. And I talked in detail about that in that episode on how having someone who was in my face early in my career was really useful to me and helped me to make some big shifts uh, appeal to the nobler motive. The link for that will, of course, be in the episode notes as well as this week's weekly leadership guide. And if you would like to also receive the weekly leadership guide, go on over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. When you do so, you'll be able to get access to the entire episode library searchable by topic since 2011. There's so many topics we have filed under the library now. Uh, this episode will be filed under management skills, new leaders. Uh, there's even a button there for Bonnie. So if you want to go check out some of the other episodes that Bonnie's been on responding to questions, you can do that as well. Uh, and of course, COVID-19 is ever present uh, in our world right now and will be for the foreseeable future. We have a bunch of episodes tagged under COVID-19 that'll be helpful to you and your team right now as we all navigate a new world. So check that out online. That'll give you access to all of that, plus a ton more 
inside the free membership. Lots of benefits there available to you, including my entire library. Perhaps you've heard of NPR's Guy Raz and his interviews of business founders on his popular podcast, How I Built This. Next week, Guy joins me to teach us what he's discovered from leaders on how to build something new. Join me for that conversation with Guy Raz. Have a wonderful week and see you next Monday. Take care, everyone. 